in our time together, we've spent probably 95% of our sermons going through books of the Bible, verse by verse, section by section. As your pastor, I feel like this is the responsible way to handle Scripture. I don't cherry-pick my favorite Bible verses. On, on Judgment Day, we want to be able to say that we engaged difficult Scriptures. We didn't avoid them. We, we've seen them. We've engaged them. Even as some of them, such as this section of 1 Peter this morning, they're awkward, they're uncomfortable, Hence the name of my sermon, Bristle and Squirm. <laughs> Big question. Why is Scripture involving gender relationship, man, woman, husband, wife, so, so uncomfortable to engage? The first question always asked, always asked with these types of Scriptures, isn't Bible culture different than ours? Well, as we've seen in Peter's letter, because of who we are in Jesus... We're to live differently. Uh, we're to be good citizens and servants because of our gospel witness. We, we represent Jesus. And, and as we've seen to Peter's first century audience, to, to whom he originally wrote, he, he's addressed the giving of honor to king and governors as well as how servants are to honor authority. And in America of 2021, we, we don't have a king, but we have someone in charge. And as we saw last time, when we engaged the end of chapter 2 of this letter of 1 Peter, we saw this language of slavery. And we were told by the theologian Wayne Grudem why this passage is hard to fathom due to our picturing of the first century Eastern audience. We want to take the picture of them and we want to put it in the picture frame of 19th century America. And Grudem wrote the following. He said, The horrible degradation of slaves in 19th century America gives the word that Peter uses there a far worse connotation than is accurate for most of the society to, to which Peter is writing. We saw last time that those who were operating as house servants, they were trained as, some of them were trained as doctors and musicians and skilled artisans. It's, it's a whole different context. We don't throw out what Peter said about servants. We just can't apply the 19th century America picture over 1st century East. We don't throw out what Peter said. Why do we not? Well, I want you to write this scripture down. One which you've seen, one which you've heard. It's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man and woman of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. The NIV, if you, have, if you are looking at NIV, reads, All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. His Word is alive. His Word is alive. Do we believe that God's Word changes? I mean, if so, then do we even need Romans chapter 3 anymore? Romans chapter 3 verse 23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Do we still believe that? Do we, do we still sin? Yes. I mean, we wouldn't dream of arguing with that. We, we wouldn't throw it out. We would agree that God's Word doesn't change. However, we cannot ignore the, the original audience in the context so the question for us, 
How does God's Word apply now? For instance, in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, we saw this last time, we established that we're not house slaves. But each of us still has someone in authority to whom we have to relate. It won't be a master, but, but it, but it will be, would be a boss or a foreman, a supervisor. God's Word still applies even if the application looks different. So Jake, what if I'm not married? What if I'm single or after a number of years I'm single again? Great question. God's Word still applies even if the application looks different. It may not be an obvious application, but there is still application. Peter begins chapter 3 verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won over without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your pure and respectful behavior. Considering Peter's original audience, Edmund Clowney wrote the following. Both Greek philosophy and Roman custom required order in the household as the foundation of order in the state. In calling for the submission of wives to their husbands, Peter is requiring behavior that would be approved in society at large. Such conduct would put to shame the slanderers of Christian lifestyle. So how does this apply today? These are difficult words. Why? Because of the distorted picture and the distorted images which many have seen, which many have lived. I don't know all of your stories. I know some. I don't know all of them. But stories run the gamut, don't they? From A to Z. From the happy to the horribly tragic. A question for us this morning. Can we trust the Lord to help us past all of our stuff? And we all have stuff. Can we trust the Lord to help us through all of our stuff to hear Peter to engage what Peter's saying without fixed opinions. There's a comparison statement located here. Peter is saying that the relationship between wives to husbands should mirror the relationship between husbands and the Word. Bottom line, if husbands and wives are both subject to the Word of God, then there's no distortion. When this is out of balance, distortion presents itself. Peter is saying that those men who are disobedient to the Word... The Word of God can be won over, in some cases won back to the Word, by the behavior of wives. Wives are able to communicate a lot of information without saying a word. Am I right? (laughs) Wives are able to communicate a lot of information without saying a word. And grace-filled wives, without one syllable uttered, can point a husband to an appropriate posture before the Lord and the things of the Lord. One of my oldest friends in ministry, he grew up in a home where this happened. His mother raised five children and and made sure they were in church. The father wanted nothing to do with the things of God. The father worked, the father was, was home, but the father wanted nothing to do with the things of God. And over time, with faithful witness... And prayer, the husband, the father, came to the Lord. I know that doesn't happen in all 
situations or cases, but it, but it did here. It, it, it can happen. And, and there's something else to note. Peter addresses mistreatment in chapter 2. We saw that last time. He addresses mistreatment with servants and authority. Mistreatment is not mentioned at all in this passage. Mistreatment is not mentioned. Peter evidently would not recognize even the idea that a husband who claims to be a Christ follower would mistreat a wife or vice versa. Mistreatment, abuse, is a disgusting distortion. That was not appropriate then. It's not appropriate now. And I recognize that that's one reason why passages such as this morning's are challenging. They, they stir up memories of, of rage. They, they stir up memories of hypocrisy and, and hurt. But I want to remind us of words found in Psalm 147, verse 3. The Lord heals the brokenhearted, and the Lord will bind up those wounds. We, we can trust Him to, to heal and to bring help. Peter says in verse 3, Your adornment must not be merely the external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on apparel, but it should be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, the holy women of former times who hoped in God also used to adorn themselves, being subject to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have proved to be her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Again, the content of this stuff can make a wife bristle and a husband squirm. Oh my goodness. Peter is not saying don't mess with hair, jewelry, or clothes. Peter's not saying that. Peter is saying that the adornment of the heart is infinitely greater than all those things. Those things are fine, but the adornment of the heart is is greater, infinitely greater. This adornment of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, this is precious in the sight of God. And, And here's the thing about that gentle and quiet spirit. We've seen that in no less an example than Jesus himself. When Jesus entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he was on the foal of a donkey, and he came in gentle, quiet, meekly. Now the crowds were going crazy, but he came in gentle and humble. And we have also seen that at the mock trial of Jesus right before the crucifixion, Jesus said not a word. So what's all this business with Abraham and Sarah? Again, it sounds so foreign to our ears. Peter points out that Sarah Sarah speaks of Abraham as her master, and that's Genesis 18, verse 12. Edmund Clowney said this, The Greek term that Peter uses for Lord is used in polite address, like our sir or mister. It indicates the respect with which Sarah spoke of Abraham. Certainly, Sarah's submission to Abraham was not slavish. Sarah, like Abraham, was a chosen believer. And and theirs is the line of promise from which Christ was born. If you remember what the Lord told Abraham, I mean, Abraham and Sarah, they're both very aged. (laughs) And he told them, from out of you shall come a nation. And the Messiah would come 
from that family line. Christ himself would come from Abraham and Sarah. And, and, and what Clowney goes on to say, in speaking of Sarah and her children, Peter indicates her calling and her dignity. If we, if you and I have trusted in what Jesus has done for us, what he did for us on the cross, we are children of God. And we don't have to live we don't have to live in fear. We, we don't have to be frightened. What Peter's telling us there, and there in verse 6. Look at verse 7. You husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she's a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Again, oh my goodness. <laughs> Incendiary language. But listen, this, this needs some explanation. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Husbands, live with your wives. Live with them. Engage your family. Engage your spouse. Pay attention to them. Don't check out when you get home from work. You're home with them. Show your spouse compassion, patience, honor. She is your equal. <laughs> Regardless of general differences and body mass index, she is your equal. She is your fellow heir of the grace of life. She is your fellow heir to the kingdom of God. Treat her that way. Newsflash for some in our culture in these days, men and women are made differently. God designed each differently. But God designed each with distinction and dignity and purpose. Peter says in verse 8, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, loving, compassionate, and humble. All of you, man, woman, married, single, single again, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, loving, compassionate, and humble. Don't be obnoxious, jerks. Don't be contentious shrews to anyone. Verse 9, Peter says, don't return evil for evil or insult for insult, but, but give a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you would inherit a blessing. And he says this, for the one who desires life to love and to see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against evildoers. So why does Peter use this language of husband and wife? I don't know. Peter doesn't explain that here. He doesn't, he doesn't say why. But I would venture to say that Peter was informed by what he had seen and heard. Peter was of Jewish background. He grew up hearing what we call the Old Testament, the Torah, the law. He heard that in, in the temple. And, and way back at the beginning of the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 in the creation accounts, we see that the Lord created man prior to woman. In Genesis 2, we see also the first picture of marriage. In Genesis chapter 2 verse 18, we read that the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And, he, and the Lord took one of his ribs 
the man's ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which the Lord had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. This is a relationship where two are joined together as one. Marriage is a big deal. It's a big deal. And we flash forward to the New Testament. The picture of marriage represents Christ as the bridegroom and the church as the bride. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. A sacrificial love as Christ died for the church, his bride. Husband is called to go that far for his wife. Sacrificial love. In Revelation 19, the last book of the Bible, we see a picture of the marriage of the Lamb. Jesus, the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. Revelation 19, verse 7, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him, capital H, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. And then two chapters later, Revelation 21, these words of John. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. The final consummation. The final consummation of the coming of the kingdom of heaven is such a powerful image. Such a distinct image. Such an important set-apart image that John compares it to nothing less than a wedding. Marriage is serious. Marriage is serious. The joining of husband and wife is an earthly picture which should point to Christ as the bridegroom and the church as the bride of Christ. Let me say that one more time. The joining of husband and wife is an earthly picture which points to Christ as the bridegroom and the church as the bride of Christ. And in the same manner, you can, you can, you can flip that around. The picture of Christ as the bridegroom and the church as the bride of Christ. That's the model for the joining of a husband and a wife. Any other union is a distortion of this biblical picture. Any other union is a distortion of this biblical picture. We distort the biblical picture when we change relationship factors and parties around. And sometimes we don't know we're doing that, but we distort the biblical picture when we change those factors. And this is why marriage is serious. Marriage is a witness for the gospel. Peter has said this entire letter thus far that we are to represent Christ. And this means our marriages as well. Do our children or grandchildren, do they witness the gospel in our marriages? Do our neighbors? I know what it's like to have lived beside neighbors that fight. A former co-worker 
once stated, the best gift that a father can give to his children is how he loves their mother. How have we seen family relationships depicted in our culture and our media? (laughs) Think of the clueless boobs we've seen portray husbands on TV in the last 70 years. And we have laughed. Jackie Gleason on The Honeymooners. Ray Romano on Everybody Loves Raymond. Al Bundy on Married with Children. Archie Bunker. It's not a sacrificial love that these men have for their wives. Think of the way which wives have been portrayed on TV. Ditsy like Marion Cunningham off Happy Days. Edith Bunker. Overbearing like Raymond's mother Marie Barone. We've seen moms and dads being portrayed as clueless idiots on TV where these adolescents are the heroes of their show. They're the stars and they've got to always bail out dear old mom and dad. But there are a couple of other reasons that we bristle and squirm. What we bring to these passages, our our personal experience, our, our baggage. We need to take caution to not bring our own opinions and our own identity to Bible study before we even read the Scripture. Let, let me say that again. We, we, we need to take caution to not bring our own opinions and our own identity to Bible study before we even read the Scripture. What do I mean? For instance, there are those persons who would consider themselves conservatives. Uh, there, were, there are some that would consider themselves moderate or, or progressive or, or fundamentalist or, or feminist. or you know, Run the gamut. What's the new one? Woke. And the challenge with labels, the challenge with labels and banners, it's the risk of thinking, how am I going to interpret this in a manner which best supports my label? And this can happen unintentionally or intentionally. Let me, let me say that again. The challenge with labels and banners and, and, and whatever name tag or brand It's the risk of thinking either intentionally or unintentionally, how am I going to interpret this in a manner which best supports my label or my platform? Really, we're asking, am I going to have to backpedal? And when that's our concern, that's idolatry. When we're more concerned with our reputation than the content of Scripture. I once heard an actor say this. I like to bring my own ideas to rehearse a movie scene. I read what the writers have presented, and then I improvise with my own stuff. I take their work, and then I ad-lib. And while on one hand, we certainly admire the creativity of the actor, no question. We admire the creativity, but it's an insult to the writers who've prepared the script. (laughs) It's one thing to engage the writing, but it's another thing to to improvise over the top of it. When we come to the table to feast on the Word of God, it's not a potluck. We don't bring our own casserole to place alongside the the dish of Scripture. We don't bring our own casserole to place alongside the dish of Scripture because that would be an insult to the one who provides the meal. The number one reason we bristle and we squirm, 
It's the one thing with which we all have in common. Regardless of gender, it's what we have to acknowledge in ourselves. Sin. And this hits us all. Man, woman, young, old, married, single, single again. When we get down to it, at the end of the day, we, we each one, all of us, have a problem with authority. We all do. And that's the big problem. We are hardwired to not want to be told what to do or how to live. And that's precisely why we need a Savior. That's precisely why. We, we need a Savior to deal with our sin. We need a Lord to give us direction, to have authority over us. Jesus submitted before the authority of the Father. I think we forget that sometimes. Jesus himself submitted to the authority of the Father. We need a Savior and we need a Lord. And, and, and here's the thing. If you and I are going to trust Jesus for salvation, we have to be willing to trust Him to be Lord and Master. Do we trust the Lord enough to show us what He wants to show us in His Word? We can trust Him for salvation. Do we trust Him with everything else?